Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to be in Numbers 18 and 19 tonight, but I want to start in 1 Peter. And I want to, I want to bring you that word of encouragement and, and excitement. I sent out an email earlier this week, and part of that email was just saying, it was, was reflecting on this is, this is what people think of as that last week of Jesus. It was, you know, historically 2,000 plus years ago. But this was that final week. The last Sunday was Palm Sunday. We really didn't say a whole lot about that at church, but it was the Sunday that Jesus entered in Jerusalem to the people crying out, Hosanna, Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, I used to always think that was just like saying hallelujah, saying praise God. But it's not. The people were crying out for salvation because in that moment, on that day, they thought that Jesus was Mashiach come among them. He was Messiah. Messiah is here. The son of David. So save us. Now, many of them were caught up, caught up into the politics of salvation. Save us from Rome. Save us from the world and from the oppression that we feel. Some were looking for the great spiritual salvation that would come with Messiah. But they cried that out. Oh, save. Hosanna. Oh, save. And it struck me as, as I sent that email out to you this week that we need to be praying that prayer. Not for ourselves, but in our salvation. We need to be those who are crying out, Oh, save. Oh, save, son of David. And use us however you see fit to bring about that salvation to the world around us. To not be content with settling in, but to be those, as we just sang, who are sent. That's the calling of the royal priesthood. This royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood of Israel was a priesthood that was for the people of Israel. We are not. We are a priesthood for all people. Those who are called in our redemption to a responsibility. Think about it this way. We are responsible to our redemption. I'll speak more on this in a minute. We're not responsible for our redemption. Jesus is. He gave it to us. He saved us. His blood graced us with salvation and redemption. But once redeemed, we're responsible to that redemption. And I'll talk more about what that means. But First Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe and for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Sharon, a rock of offense. That's a conversation between us. You can ask later about that. Not that she's offensive. (laughs) No, I'll tell you this much. We were talking this afternoon about the fact that if we are truly sharing the word of God, we are going to offend. I talked about that Sunday morning. We are going to stink good to some people and stink bad to others. 
but we need to continue to bring the message because the message of the gospel is the only hope anybody has. And Jesus himself was a rock which causes offense. And it says they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That word proclaim ought to be circled and underlined and highlighted in every Bible. I am a royal priesthood. I'm a royal priest. Member of the royal priesthood. Called out. Why? So that I will be someone who proclaims. That I'm someone whose mouth is open with the, with the name of Jesus everywhere I go. That's what being a member of the royal priesthood means. To proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now why are we reading this? Well, we're back to the priesthood. Back to the priesthood. And every time in the Old Testament you study about the priesthood, you have every right to make direct application to the royal priesthood of all believers. That's why it's there. All of these Old Testament pictures, as we go through and we see Jesus everywhere, and we see these connections, the Old Testament is our teacher, our schoolmaster, that brings us to Christ, and once in Christ, we see it completely differently. And so as the royal priesthood or the Levitical priesthood is talked about in the Old Testament, so we as the royal priesthood can learn from it, can draw out of it, and apply it to our lives. Not in the keeping of law, because we live by grace, but in the actions and the behaviors and, and the things that God laid out for the priests that he laid out on purpose, not only for them, but as a guide to us as to what it means to be priests. I used the phrase probably a year ago now, priest in training. Remember, I may have told some of you that Russ, in his emails, would always sign it, Russ Pittis, P-I-T, priest in training. You know? And I love that. It's that mentality of, I am part of the royal priesthood. I'm in training here. God has called me out for it. But with the role of being a royal priest comes a responsibility. With redemption comes responsibility. And once we've stepped into our redemption and accepted it, that's what we've got to understand. And there are several great points here in go over to Numbers chapter 18 of priestly living for you and I as members of the royal priesthood. We're going to divide up these two chapters. And I'm going to try and move through chapter 18 and 19 tonight. We're going to divide it up into five sections. The last section is chapter 19. Chapter 19 in and of itself is one section. And we'll go quickly through that. But chapter 19 is the wonderful teaching about the ordination of the red heifer. You're going to like this one. It's amazing. If you don't know much about what the red heifer is or the connection in scripture, it is mind-boggling. We'll get there toward the end. But five, five sections. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. You can use these to follow along. In Numbers 18 and 19, in Numbers 18, the first four sections are the responsibility of the priests. Secondly, the reception of the priests. Thirdly, the royal allotment of the priests. Number four, the return of the priests. 
And number five, which we'll get to in chapter 19, the reminder of redemption. So one more time, the responsibility of the priest, the reception of the priest, the royal allotment of the priest, the return of the priest, and finally, the reminder of redemption. Now, before we read these first verses in chapter 18, you might ask the question, which is always the question I ask as I go into the next chapter. One of the first things on my mind, and maybe it's a good tool for you to use in Bible study, why is this here? Why at this point in Scripture does this chapter appear? We have just read over the last two or three weeks, we've been doing some study about Korah's rebellion. Korah and Abiram and Dathan and how they rebelled against Moses and consequently against the Lord. And how they got completely taken out. Their, Their rebellion was absolutely blatant. In Numbers chapter 16, and then in Numbers 17, we saw the budding rod of Aaron. And how God said, Aaron is my man. Aaron, Aaron, he's our man. And he stands behind Aaron. And he raises him up and says, this is my high priest. This is where the authority is. I am behind him. And now all of a sudden, following this really dramatic section of Scripture, this fascinating story of what happened in that rebellion and the, and the aftermath of it, and then Aaron's rod budding, suddenly we get to chapter 18, and at first glance you feel like you've just been chucked back into Leviticus, or maybe the end of Exodus. Duties of the Levites. The priest portion. These are some of the headings in my Bible. Reading these things, you think, well, okay, so the fun, the storytelling stuff's over, we've got to deal with some other stuff, and then we'll get back to the story later. Gang, this is here for a reason. A very specific reason, and it's fascinating to me as we look at these things, that the first thing God does after this rebellion settles and the authority is clear, He takes it straight back to the priesthood. He goes to the priesthood and He does it for good reason. Why? Well, let's listen in to what God says to the high priest Aaron. And number one in our, in our uh, outline here, the responsibility of the priest. And I'll tell you what, let's pause for just a moment and let's ask the Lord to really teach us. Holy Spirit, as we come before you again as a royal priesthood, we seek our training and our preparation for being sent out. And Lord, we don't know what you have for us on the horizon. We don't know what the next... Uh, move of your spirit is going to be here at the bridge but while we expect it and desire it and Lord wait for it I pray that you will give us confidence as a royal priesthood blood bought by Jesus to be ready to step up and step out ready to move ready to go ready to do whatever you've called us to do I pray Father that the whole fellowship will get caught up in what you're doing and that you'll reveal it to us and give us vision for it. But Father, tonight, in the time we have together, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you enter us with your word? Would you implant the written word into our lives, into our hearts, as a living word? And convict us and speak to us. And Father, I know there's some things here that are very personal for some here tonight. I pray that all our ears will be open to hear. And Holy Spirit... Show us these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, number one in our outline. The responsibility of the priest. Verse 1, chapter 18. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. The responsibility of the priesthood. This is one of only two times in the entire Old Testament scriptures where the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. 
and not to Aaron and Moses together or to Aaron through Moses. There's only one other time. It's back in Exodus chapter 4 verse 27 where God goes to Aaron and directs him to go meet his brother Moses in the desert to help him out in this saving of the people of Israel. That's the only other time. So that's significant. Here we are in chapter 18 and suddenly God is directing something just to Aaron, just for Aaron, speaks to him. And why is this direct communication necessary? Listen to verse 1 one more time. The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt. You shall bear the guilt. Now think about the context of what's just happened. Aaron's rod budded. It bloomed. Aaron was the head honcho, the high priest. He was the man. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they're in the pit. Those 250 men of renown, they're flambeed. The rebellious children of Israel, plagued. But Aaron came out smelling like almond joy. (laughs) He's looking good. And I don't know about you, but I'll tell you, my nature, I would be on a pretty big head trip. I'd be standing there going, yeah, told you it was me. I'm the guy. I'd be self-satisfied. I'd be feeling superior and a little smug. I'd be the one going, yeah, I'm still standing. Cora? Cora who? <laughs> He's not here. Don't even see any remnant or, or you know, anything left of him. Where's a Byram's tent? Oh, that's right, swallowed up, you know? I mean, here's Aaron. He's, he's the main guy. And the Lord immediately checks his heart and says, Aaron, don't get cocky. Guess what? You are to bear the guilt. You're responsible. Aaron, you're responsible to a degree for the sins of the people of Israel. The sins that have just happened. Guess what? You bear some responsibility there. You're part of this. The priest has a responsibility to his redemption. You can't just chuck the blame back on the other people's shoulders, on the shoulders of those around you who have offended or have done the wrong thing. No, the Lord says you're going to shoulder that burden with them. You are going to bear the guilt. God's saying, Aaron, I support you. I've made your authority bear fruit. But listen, it's not because of who you are. It's because I am. That's the only reason that rod budded. Not because Aaron just happens to be more special. It's only because God is at work. And I wonder how my perspective toward, toward a brother or sister in Christ, especially one who has sinned against me, might change if I chose to shoulder the burden of their sin rather than point it out. If I chose to be one who said, when someone sins against me or attempts to hurt me, I'm going to bear that sin with them. Paul puts it this way, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. He says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And I don't like that. Bear one another's burdens? I'll tell you what, when someone else sins, my natural tendency, the human tendency, and I've seen it all too often in the church, is we cast out or we turn our backs to. We don't want to shoulder that, but they sinned. (laughs) There's sin hanging off this person. And if I get too close, it might affect me. They just got to deal with, you know, their own thing. Personal responsibility. And God says it is your personal responsibility as a royal priest to bear their burden with them. To walk with them through it. Now, Paul does say, look to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
Yes, take care. Don't enter into someone else's sin life with them. If you've got someone who's got an alcohol problem, don't go, I'm going to go drinking with them so that the, together we can bear this sin. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you've got someone who is sinning against you or sinning in the body, bear with them. Pray for them. Hurt with them. A lady in our, in our fellowship had a vision this week. Interesting vision. She woke up in the middle of the night and suddenly saw, I mean literally woke up. She wasn't asleep. She saw standing at the foot of her bed another person, someone who is struggling, and that person was standing there wearing a ball and chain. One of those old-fashioned, literally, ball and chain strapped to her ankle. And disappeared. That was it. I mean, it was like an instantaneous thing and, and it freaked her out completely because she knew she was awake. She got up and went in the bathroom, got a drink of water, came back to bed and had trouble even going back to sleep. And the next day, she spent most of the day weeping about it. She talked to me about it and couldn't even get the story out without bursting into tears. It was so heavy. And she said at the end of the day, I don't like this. This is too heavy. I don't need this burden. I don't know even what I'm supposed to do about this. She's connected with this this person in a way and she knows that this person is in pain and is hurting and is struggling and is having a really hard time right now. And so she's given this picture that was just a dramatic picture for her, really hard for her to see and weeping and struggling over it. But I came to study this week and I see Aaron being told that he needs to bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary to bear the guilt in connection with his priesthood that it's his responsibility and that's what we're called to gang to shoulder one another's burdens to love each other enough that to know that in our redemption we have a responsibility and that's to each other and to the lost in this world we're responsible to a degree to love people and to bear their burdens together well verse 2 it goes on and check this out but bring with you also and this should be stunning to us bring with you also your brothers the tribe of Levi the tribe of your father so that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony and they shall thus attend to your obligation and the obligation of all the tent but they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary or or the altar both they and you will die but they shall be joined with you and attend to the obligations of the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent but an outsider may not come near you verse 5 so you shall attend to the obligations of the sanctuary and the obligations of the altar so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel behold I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel they are a gift to you dedicated to the Lord to perform the service for the tent of meeting but you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil and you are to perform service I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death listen closely because this even more clearly defines our role as a royal priesthood in connection with our high priest Aaron you know is the high priest he is in type like Jesus Jesus is our high priest the high priest the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says the high priest of our profession or our confession 
consider Jesus our great high priest. So Aaron is like the high priest, like Jesus in type. So the Levitical priesthood is like the royal priesthood in type. Jesus the high priest, us the royal priesthood, like the Levitical priesthood. What am I saying here? Listen, as Levi is to Aaron, so you and I are to Jesus in this world. As Levi were, and it says, a gift to Aaron. The tribe of Levi, a gift to Aaron, dedicated to the Lord. So we are a gift to Jesus, dedicated to the Lord. He's the high priest. He's the one offering sacrifice. He's the one redeeming, not us. But we are in service to the Lord. We are dedicated to Him. And what is our service? Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation. That's the function, the service. Jesus put it this way, John chapter 16, verse 7. He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Powerful words. It is more effective in this world, Jesus says, if I'm not here in the flesh. Now, I would have thought the opposite. Man, can you imagine? Easter morning, guest speaker, Jesus. (laughs) Big turnout. Problem is, it'd be in one church, in one place. But this Easter Sunday morning, Jesus is going to show up all over the map. And believers in his royal priesthood. It's fantastic. It's what, a, what a, an amazing plan, an amazing idea to enter into his people and to fill them and to dwell in them that he might spread even more effectively throughout the world. Well, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's our job. That's our task. Which is why I believe the rebellion of Korah drew such harsh and immediate punishment. Now don't miss this. The rebellion of Korah. Korah, Dathan, Abiram were put down brutally. It was an awful scene there. I've joked a little bit about it, but gang, the earth opening up and swallowing them was horrific. The fact that 250 people were fried immediately was awful. So... Why does this have anything to do with the immediate punishment, this idea of the royal priesthood and our role into the world? Follow this through. Number 16, verse 2, tells us something about Korah. It tells us that Korah was of the tribe of Levi. Korah was a Levite. We're told also that Dathan, Abiram, and On were of the tribe of Reuben. Now, what does that mean? Simply this, that Reuben and Levi represented two arms of Israel. Reuben, a political arm, the firstborn tribe. So there was a political group of people wanting some power. And then Levi, the spiritual, the priestly arm. So you've got both religion and politics working together to try and overthrow Moses. That's what's happening there. Levi was the priestly tribe. Levi were the spiritual leaders. And what happened to the rest of Israel as a result of Levi's fall? Major fallout. Levi fell. Korah fell. We know that Korah and his family and Dathan and Abiram and their families were wiped out, swallowed up. We know that 250 men of renown were swallowed up. But we also know that the next day, as a result of these leaders falling, 14,700 Israelites were plagued and died. A much larger number. Why? Because the leaders fell. And when the leaders fall, the people fall apart. 
And that is biblical and it's historical and it happens time and time again. Spiritual leaders will rebel or they'll fall or they'll deceive or they'll mislead and the real carnage happens among the people. That is why I believe God put this down so immediately and so brutally and so harshly. Because it was leaders who were falling. It was leaders who were rebelling. It was the spiritual leaders of Israel who were leading the charge against in this rebellion and when the leaders fall, the people fall out in much worse degree. The Levites had a privileged responsibility as a priesthood and they blew it. Which I believe is why James says, James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Think about it this way. If ordinary Oscar Oak Harbor, okay, an average Indiana Cordis, if these, these two guys, if they show up at church every now and then, they're not really known, they're not really involved, they just kind of come on occasion, oh sure, they're Christians, if they fall, if they sin, there will be some fallout. Someone in the family will be affected, a friend may be hurt. But if one of our elders should sin in a big public way, if one of our Bible study teachers rebels, if someone in a position of spiritual leadership falls apart, if yours truly comes up short, blows it royally, the fallout, the fallout can be truly devastating. So why would anybody choose to lead? Why would anybody step up to leadership in a church fellowship? Knowing, as James said, especially teachers, you're going to incur a stricter judgment. You're going to be watched more closely. You're going to live in that proverbial glass house. You're stuck there and people are going to watch. And, and if you blow it, if you blow it, more people are going to be affected than if you just sat in the back pew and made no noise at all. Just kind of silently do the church thing. Why would anybody step up to lead? This is what's truly amazing to me. What's happening here in the first seven verses of chapter 18, God is restoring Levi to the priesthood. Even though the sin came directly out of Levi, he is now turning around and immediately after this carnage, he's turning around and saying, I'm restoring you. I'm putting you back in the place I called you to. This is where I want you to be. And this should tell us something, gang, about how our Father deals with spiritual leadership and the failure of spiritual leaders. He restores. He restores. This is what He does. It is a rule of thumb for the Father. Restoration. For us, when a pastor or a leader falls, oftentimes we're through with them. They get fired. You know? pastor goes into the pit. They get fired just like the men of renown. They end up plagued. Their, their lives are a mess because the church says, you fell, you blew it, you let us down. As far as we're concerned, they can stay in the pit. We'll go get someone else. Don't worry, I'm not about to announce some major sin in my life. Making an example here. But man's way, gang, when stuff like that happens, is the way of rejection. God's way is the way of restoration. That's how He functions. That's how He cares for His leaders. Let me just say this to you. That if you have ever been or are in a position of spiritual leadership and you either blew it or will blow it in the future, understand this. And I believe this truly that when God calls you to spiritual leadership, when He gives you that gifting, 
just because you sin doesn't mean the gifting goes away. Just because you fail, and you may fail grandly, doesn't mean that God's through with your ministry and with what He's called you to. It just means now you're in a position to come to God in the way that God wants us all to come to Him. Proverbs 29.23 A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Peter is the perfect example of this. It was his pride that led him into deliberate denial of Jesus. He blew it big time. He fell apart. But so beautiful is that scene where Jesus restores him. Peter is with Jesus, and this is just a few days before the major betrayal. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have once turned again, in other words, Peter, you're going to blow it. But when you've turned around, Go and strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm with you and ready. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will crow today, will not crow today until you deny me three times that you know me. So Peter was, now I'll, I'll go to death for you, Father. For you, Jesus. I'll follow you all the way to the grave. And Jesus says, no, you're going to blow it. But after you blow it, heart of the Father, after you sin, after you fail, strengthen your brothers. How could he possibly do that? The Father is going to restore him. I am dying. Can turn that off? I can only go so far, gang. And we got to cool down. All this to say the following, gang. A major component of redemptive restoration is God returning us to responsibility. Let me say that again. Listen. A major component of redemptive restoration is a return to responsibility. It's a return to doing what God has called you to do. It's a return to ministry, the ministry that you were gifted for. The ministry that you were gifted to do in the Lord. God wants to return us to that even after we have fallen. Jesus and Peter on that seashore, John chapter 21. And and Jesus says to Peter three times, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Three times, as in three rebellious deceits, and as in three times that that Peter said, I deny the Lord. Now Jesus is saying three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter says yes, and he says, good, then tend my lambs. You failed, Peter. But if you love me, come on back. I have ministry for you to do that is better than anything you've ever done before. Because now you're functioning from a place of humility. Now when the power happens, you'll know it's not you. Come on back, Peter. It's amazing grace that restores the Levites to their service. Theirs was a great rebellion, but now a grand restoration takes place as God brings them back to this redemptive responsibility. It's God's heart to save, but I have a heart to play. I have a part to play. I am responsible to my redemption. Man, I can relate to Levi. I like reading this. After this major failure, Levi is called back in to ministry and redirected for ministry. Now the Lord goes on to confirm or reconfirm their priestly portion. So that's the second thing in our outline, the reception of the priest. Verse 8, reading on. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings, even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. I have given them as your portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. 
This shall be yours from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, even every grain offering and sin offering and guilt offering, which they shall render to me, shall be most holy for you and your sons. As the most holy gifts, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. This is also yours. The offering of their gift, even all the wave offerings of the sons of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Every one of your household who is clean may eat of it. This is the reception of the priests. It's what they receive. It's what they get. You ever wonder where all those offerings went? I mean, even the burnt offerings, there was always meat left over. In the sin offering, there was meat that wasn't burned up in the sin offering. Where does it go? And God says it goes to the priests. Aaron, it goes to you and your sons. It goes to Levi. It goes to the priesthood. All of these things, these gifts, I'm giving to you. And understand, when I say this is the reception of the the priest, it's not the reward of the priests. Because a reward is something you earn. But these are gifts. He uses the phrase over and over, all the holy gifts I've given them to you. The holy gifts, you shall eat of them. These are gifts. And the Lord says, I'm giving them to you. Not, Aaron, because you've earned it. Not, Levi, because you've done the work so you deserve it. But because I'm a gracious father and I like to give. And like the priestly tribe of Levi... As a royal priesthood, John 1.16 gang for of his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. We are receivers of the gifts of God, not earners of those gifts. It's nothing but absolute grace by which the Lord gives gifts to his priests and to us. You know the verse Matthew 7.11, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And in Luke 11.13, he relates that to the Holy Spirit. He said, that's the best gift of all. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. All you've got to do is ask. That's all you have to do. You want more? Well, let me put it this way. Do you want more gifting in your life? Do you want more spiritual gifting? Ask Him. Ask the Lord. And He'll give. He's a gracious Father. He wants to give. And what kind of offerings did the priests receive? They received the best. Look at verse 12. All the best of the fresh oil. And all the best of the fresh wine. And of the grain. The first fruits of those which they give to the Lord. I give them to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land. Which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Every one of your household who is clean may eat of it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. We talked about that back in Leviticus, that there was a, a price of redemption that was paid, so they didn't actually sacrifice the firstborn of, among men. Verse 16, As to their redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras. Do you know what 20 giras is? Five shekels. Five shekels, exactly. Very good. But the firstborn of an ox, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They're holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, and shall offer up their fat and smoke as an offering by fire, for a soothing aroma to the Lord. But their meat... Their meat shall be yours. 
It shall be yours like the breast of a wave offering and like the right thigh. All of the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, which I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment, the best of the best of the best. These are what is given. The best 10%, God says to all of Israel, give me the best 10%. And then he turns right around and takes that best 10% and gives it to the priesthood. Gives it to Levi. But notice how the Levites received these things. They received them in the work of the service. These things came to them and it was through doing the work of their service that they then received the gift. It was through doing the work of sacrifice then that the meat of the sacrifice became theirs to eat. They did the work and they received the gifts through the work. This is key and it piggybacks precisely on what we talked about on Sunday and that's this. The degree to which I learn to live for the kingdom, gang, that's the degree to which I will experience life in the fullest. The more my life is about service in the kingdom, the more fulfilled and satiated and satisfied my life will be. The more I live for myself, the more I'm concerned about self-help, the less satisfied I'll be because I'm going to constantly find things that are wrong with me that I need self-help for. The more I'm focused on me. Self-help Christianity. The shelves of Christian bookstores are loaded with it. No wonder so many American Christians are starving today. Because we're reading all these books about self-help instead of reading the book which tells us to help others. And to love the Lord. Now listen, as Aaron's family in particular offered the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and the grain offerings and the wave offerings, as they did the work of their priestly service, they were fed. They were fed. If they didn't do the work, they wouldn't have been fed. It truly was in their service that the feeding came. That's the Lord's menu for a healthy priesthood. And we need to learn from that and understand that. John chapter 4, I won't go there right now, but tells us an interesting story about the Samaritan woman and Jesus. Remember, he meets her at the well. And at the well, he sits down and he's tired. And and his disciples, they go into town because they're hungry that day. They go looking for some food. And out comes the Samaritan woman. You know the story. She begins to talk to Jesus. And she's unsure about him. Here's this, this you know, Jewish prophet, and she's a Samaritan woman, but he begins to talk to her, which amazes her, because she's a woman and because she's a Samaritan. Two strikes against her. But they begin to talk and, and have a conversation. And through that conversation, Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah. He reveals things about her life. He prophesies to her. Things that he shouldn't have known, but he did know because he's Jesus. And she's so excited and blown away, it tells us she left her water jugs at the well and she ran back into the town to tell the people, could this be the Messiah? He knew things about me that most of you don't even know. Is this the Messiah? And at the same time this is going on, the apostles come running out. They come walking up to Jesus. They want to know what's going on. They saw this woman running by. What's what's happening, Lord? He begins to talk to them about the harvest. And, and they say, as these people, this mass of Samaritans are coming out of the city toward the well, and listen to this, they say to Jesus, Lord, aren't you hungry? You need something to eat, Lord. Here, have something to eat. You remember what Jesus said? I have food that you know nothing about. I am full today. Now, they were all just starving a little while ago, and there's no way Jesus got food while they were in town, so the apostles must be looking at each other. What are you talking about? You're full. I have food that you know nothing about. I have a filling here. And look up the road. That's it. Lives are about to be saved, and I am full. 
That's the food of the Lord. That's the menu for a healthy priesthood. And the Lord reminds this priestly tribe back in Numbers chapter 18 that their feeding comes in their service. That the more they serve, the more they're fed. And it works together. Now notice the last phrase in, in verse 19. It says, This is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. A covenant of salt. What's a covenant of salt? This is used three times in the Bible. The other two verses help us understand what a covenant of salt is. Leviticus 2.13 God says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, God says, you shall offer salt. A covenant of salt. He also says in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5, Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Does that give you some insight into what a covenant of salt might be? Salt gain is that which preserves. It keeps things fresh. And when God talks about a covenant of salt here for the, for the sons of Levi, when he talks about it later for all of Israel, I have a covenant of salt with you, he says this is an eternal covenant, a lasting covenant. I, I for one, cannot stand eating apples without salt. I've got to have salt on my apples. Does anybody not do that? Does that sound weird? Okay, let me tell you why it's not weird. Because all of you, when you cut up your apples and put them on the little plate and you're still eating on them, they're brown and ucky looking. Okay? While you're eating them, they get that brown stuff on them. I put salt on my apples. And you know what it does? It keeps them fresh. And tasty, too. (laughs) It's really good. If you haven't tried it, try salt on your apples. But that's what it does. It preserves. It's for preservation. And God says, hey, a covenant of salt means this is a covenant that I will preserve forever. I will preserve it eternally. This is something that does not go bad. It will not go bad, this covenant of salt And Romans 11.29 tells us, For the gifts and the calling of God are, what? Without repentance. Without repentance. Without turning. When God gives a gift, when He gives a calling, He doesn't turn away from it. We do. But God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance to return, in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the service in the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout all your generations and among the sons of Israel. They shall have no inheritance. Verse 24, For the tithe of the sons of Israel, that 10%, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance inheritance among the sons of Israel and indeed that's exactly what happened number three in our outline the royal allotment of the priests was the 10% the tithe that came in that's what went to the priests that's what they got and because they got that the Lord says when you come into the promised land you will not receive an allotment of land You will receive no inheritance. Every other tribe, all the other 11 tribes, they're going to get their parcel of land. They're going to get their special place, their allotment, but not the priests. In fact, Joshua chapter 21, and you can read it on your own. You can read through that and see how the Levitical priesthood gets kind of parceled out. 
among all the other allotments of land. They, they're given cities in all of the other land belonging to all the other tribes, but they don't get their own land. They never did have their own land. They never have had their own land, their own portion or their or own allotment in the promised land. They didn't get it. But listen to this. Check this out. They will. They will. Prophetically speaking, Ezekiel chapter 48 verse 13 tells us that alongside the border of the priests, the Levites shall have 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. Moreover, they shall not sell or exchange any of it or alienate, listen, or alienate this choice portion of land. This choice portion. It is holy to the Lord. The word choice there, it's reshif in Hebrew. It means literally the first fruits. Levi, in the millennial kingdom, will get the best allotment of the land of all the tribes. But when they come into the promised land the first time, they get nothing. They get the 10%, but they don't get any allotment of land. And I wonder, why not just give them their allotment the first time? What's God doing here? What's the purpose behind this? Why they're coming into the land now, but they get nothing, they will in the millennium. Why not just give it to them the first time around? It's an excellent question. Let me answer that for you. There's a powerful principle here at play. A powerful principle for you and I, the royal priesthood, to understand. And listen, it's not about land. It's not about houses or possessions or personal property as far as God is concerned. The best of the best inheritance, the first fruits of the land is the Lord. It is the Lord. Numbers 18, verse 20. Looking back at verse 20, he says, I am your portion. I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the sons of Israel. They all get land, but you're getting better. You get me. I love this verse. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. You've heard the phrase, it's my lot in life. It's not a lot, but it's my life. Well, he says, you support my lot. You are my portion, my inheritance. Verse 6 of Psalm 16 says, The lines have fallen into place. They have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. The lines have fallen to me. He's talking about literally the measuring lines, the surveyed property lines. He's saying, man, I have my inheritance and comparing it to the land, but my inheritance, my portion, is the Lord. I was talking with someone just this week also about stepping out, about the challenge of maybe getting involved in ministry and what that means to step out into ministry. And it's a step of faith. Especially, in fact, I thought about this. You know, for someone who is who grows up, goes through high school, and then on to college and decides they're going to go into ministry, which is what I did, it's not that hard. Honestly, to have the faith to go into ministry because you have no idea what you're missing otherwise. But I would wager that it's much harder for someone who functions in a profession, a different job, to step out of that job and into ministry. Especially if that job is lucrative. Especially if that job is something that they know, man, I can build a future here. And God starts to call to ministry and they go, what does that mean? Can I step out into that? Let me just remind each and every one of you that our portion is the Lord. Our allotment, our inheritance is Jesus Christ. He's the high priest of our profession. Not everyone will be called to full-time ministry. But whatever your job, your career, your profession, don't forget that Jesus is our profession. 
and that he is our portion as well. He is why we're here and that is a royal allotment better than any land that we could ever own. By the way, if you're worried at all about his provision in your life, maybe right now, maybe the bills are are stacked up on the table for you at home as mine are and and you're kind of going, what are you going to do? Listen to this. Lamentations 3.22 The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. And so when the Levites come into the land, they're not going to have any inheritance, any allotment, except the Lord, which is the best of the best. Now, one last thing in chapter 18, and we'll get on to chapter 20, which is really cool. Should a pastor tithe? What do you think? Should a pastor tithe? Should a full-time pastor, a minister in a church, give to the church? Now, maybe that's something you haven't... You're all nodding yes. Okay, great. Well, I guess I have no choice. You better, Rick. That is something that has been discussed and debated among pastors for years. Friends of mine, guys that I know, should we, should we not? And it is kind of weird. I mean, my kids have done this. My kids get allowance, and out of their allowance, they, they have a tithe. They, they take a tithe out, and we're trying to train them up and help them to understand the concept and what it means and how they're blessed by it. And so they take a tithe out, and a lot of times they'll just stick it on my desk for me to drop in, in the box back there. And Hannah came to me one day, and she was handing me my tithe, and she said, Yeah, why don't you just keep this? And I said, what do you mean? Well, you're going to get it anyway, right? And there are those at the bridge who probably think that everything that goes in the box goes directly to me. I don't think so. (laughs) Now, I am well taken care of, and I appreciate it greatly, but that's not what's going on back there. But should a pastor tithe when it goes in, it just comes right back. It's, almost, it's kind of funny, you know. It's almost like you're playing a game. I'm going to get paid by it anyway. It's like paying myself. Think about that. So should a pastor tithe? Jesus gives. Well, I'm not asking for your opinion here, Spencer. Sorry. <laughs> you know, he comes to the Lord. He has his life changed. And now he thinks during my teaching he can just... Shout out anytime. I did ask a question. (laughs) Jesus did give, which kind of throws me back a few steps. Should a pastor tithe? Here's what I'm getting at, gang. It's number four in our our outline here. It's the return of the priests. And I'm not talking about the fact that they're returning, but it's what they are returning. It's what they are giving back in. Look at what God says to them. He tells them, verse 25. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. The tithe comes to the Levites, to the priests, and they are to turn right around and tithe themselves. And I think, gang, this is a clear indication of God's heart for pastors and for church leaders. You receive... You turn right around and you tithe it right back. He says, Your offering, verse 27, shall be reckoned to you as the grain from the threshing floor or the full produce from the wine vat. What does that mean? It means your offering should be a good one. As the grain is there on the threshing floor, the best grain, or the wine directly out of the vat, the best wine, that's what your offering should be. That's where your heart needs to be, Levites, royal priesthood. 
So you shall also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the sons of Israel. And from it you shall give the Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. Out of all your gifts, you shall present every offering due to the Lord. From all the best of them, the sacred part from them, you shall say to them, when you have offered from it, the best of it, then the rest shall be reckoned to the Levites as the product of the threshing floor and the product of the wine vat. Again, the good stuff. And you may eat it anywhere, you and your households, for it's your compensation in return for your service in the tent of meeting. You will bear no sin by reason of it when you have offered the best of it. But you shall not profane the sacred gifts of the sons of Israel or you will die. God was so serious with the Levites that he said if you don't give that 10%, you are profaning the giving of the sons of Israel. I have never read that before. And reading that now, I have an immediate answer for any pastor friends of mine who I have this discussion with. Go and read Numbers chapter 18. Oh, well, that's Old Testament. It's the heart of God, gang. You turn around. If you are given anything by the Lord, and let me apply this to the whole priesthood here. If you are given by the Lord, turn around and give it back. Let me tell you something really cool. A little side note. In our elders meeting last night, we were just talking about some things that have happened recently and, and some decisions that we've made to, um, to give in, in some needs here in the body. And, and some of the giving that, that has come in, some that's, that's gone back out, has been a little spendy, could we say that? We, 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 there's been some, some big gifts given here and there to, to people in need. What's really cool is the last meeting we had a month ago, we just determined to, to do these things, that, that there was some benevolence needs needed to be taken care of, and we did those things. And there was, I'm just going to say the number, if you guys if you don't think it's crass, we'll just talk about the money. We had like 80000 all told in, in checking and savings a month ago, and after giving literally a, a few thousand to needs, here we are sitting down looking at the financial report in our meeting last night, and there's over 100000 this is what God does. Amen. This is how God blesses. He loves generosity. And I think, honestly, the reason why God lays it so heavy on the Levites and says, you tithe off the tithe that comes into you, why does He do that? Because He doesn't want them to miss the blessing of tithing. The blessing of giving. And it is awesome, and I'm not going to you know, continue on that, but gang, He doesn't want them to miss that the blessing is in the return. As God brings it into me and I return it to the Lord, I am more blessed because He keeps bringing it on and we keep giving it back. And it's just this, this circular pattern where we walk in the constant graciousness and blessing of God. Now listen, stick with me just a little longer. I know we've got a whole chapter before us. It, it goes by fast, but it is stunning. And I need to talk about it tonight because it has direct application on Sunday morning. And you guys will be more prepared for Sunday by hearing this.